Open your Bibles up to the fifth chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. Our text will begin in verse 18, carry through verse 21, but let us pray to begin. Father, as we open the Word of God together, we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to the truth that he would enliven our hearts to hear and to believe and to appropriate that which you have for us here. Father, we want to be people who are not merely hearers of the word, but doers. And so help us in this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, it's good to be back with you. It was uh, a good week in New England last week. Spent it with my folks celebrating my father's 90th birthday, and it was really a delight to sit with him and watch um, baseball. And I won't say anything more than that. Okay. Uh, it, was, it was a delight. It would have been a delight no matter the outcome. It was a double delight. It was indeed. So, but it's good to be back. You know, when, um, when God saves... Think about this with me. When God saves, he does not take us immediately to be with him in glory. I mean, he could do that, couldn't he? He, cer he certainly could save us and, and, and translate us and, and take us to, to be with him. But he doesn't. He doesn't do that. Instead, he, he does something really surprising, if you kind of think about it. And that is that, that he undertakes the task of transforming us, of, of changing us from the inside out, that we might become experientially what we are positionally when we trust in Christ, and, and that is a, a new creation. And so he performs this transforming work in, in you and I. And, and he doesn't leave a single aspect of our being as off-limits to him. He, he gets in and, and rearranges everything. Everything. He changes the way we think. He changes what we value. He changes our desires. He changes our goals. He changes our purpose. He changes our speech and, and he changes our behaviors. But he doesn't do it instantly. He doesn't do it instantly. He does it over time. He, he works in us over time. And he, and he does it in such a way that, that we begin to, to show the family likeness. That we as sons of the living God, begin to, to display our Father's likeness. As joint heirs with Christ, we, we begin to look like little Christ. He does this amazing, transformative work in us slowly, progressively. And he does it by his Holy Spirit through 
the scriptures, the word of God. The spirit transforms, the spirit saves and the spirit transforms through the scriptures. Gradually, the transformation, gradually, over time. And then finally and completely, in an instant, in a, in a moment of time, in the, in the blink of an eye, when he takes us to be with him in glory. That's Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15 and beginning in verse 42 to the end. So you and I, we're sitting here this morning, and, and you are alive in Christ God is at work in you as he is at work in me through his spirit, and he's changing us. Sometimes imperceptibly and, and other times more perceptively. But he is changing us. He is. So we're back here to this text this morning for the sixth and last time. Okay, This is it. This is the last time. The sixth and last time. Because there are some incredible life-changing truths for us here. We've organized our study, as you know, through a, a series of questions and answers. Ten of them. Ten questions that will help us to understand and live under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God. This is our wrap-up sermon, so what I want to do is review quickly, briefly, or we won't finish, the first nine, nine questions, and then we'll undertake the tenth. That's where we're going, okay? So hopefully you've been here for the prior five messages, or if you've not, you can access them through the website. And if, any, if you haven't, and any of these questions go, wow, I'd like to know more about that, well, you can go to that website and you can find out a lot more about that. But just by review. So here we go, first question. First question we asked six weeks ago was, why is this study so important? Why is this study so important? We said it was so important is because it, it takes us into the heart of the doctrine of sanctification and specifically our relationship with the third person of the triune God, the Holy Spirit himself. He, not it, he. Beloved, it's impossible, we noted, to, to live as Christians without the Spirit's enablement. And this text is about the Spirit's enablement. And if we don't understand how he enables us to live a life pleasing to God, then we will experience a life of frustration and spiritual defeat and, and lethargy that God would not have for us. So this is an important study, and this is why. Take a look at verse 18. Let me read it. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. 
always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. We asked and answered this question some time back. Why warn about wine? Why does Paul begin verse 18 with this warning about wine, and in particular, drunkenness? The warning about drunkenness. The answer is, is because drunkenness leads to a lifestyle of dissipation or debauchery. Drunkenness leads to debauchery. And it is debauchery or dissipation which is characteristic of spiritual darkness. That is the life of spiritual darkness. That is the life of one who does not know God and is still dead in their trespasses and sins. And Paul sets up this contrast here with the life of one who is filled by the Spirit because one filled by the Spirit has a life that produces moral excellence. And a moral excellence that is on display in the church, the home, and the community. And so there's a a great contrast here. One way, the way of dissipation belongs to the old man. The one who who is in union with Adam, who is still dead in Adam, where we formerly were. One whose life is is filled by the Spirit, one in whom the Spirit of God is actively at work, is one who is now a new creation in union with Christ. And so it is a very stark contrast that Paul gives us. We ask this question, number three. What is the filling of the Spirit? What is the filling of the Spirit? And in answering that question, you'll remember that we had to jump into the pool, into the, 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 the shallow end of the pool, but in, nevertheless, we had to get deep into the pool of Greek grammar. It took us into Greek grammar. Some of you loved it. Others of you, not so much. But we had to do it. And we did. And from that, we learned two things that are are really important. We learned that the Spirit is the means of the filling and not the content of the filling. Do you remember that? That He is the means to, to be filled by the Spirit. Not as, unfortunately, many of the modern English translations give it as be filled with the Spirit as if He were the content that filled us. So we learned that. He's the means. We also noted that the, 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 the verb here, to be filled, is a, is a present passive imperative. In other words, it's, it's a command verb with an ongoing action associated with it in which we are the recipient of the action of the verb. Again, all that Greek grammar stuff. But the important thing to, to note from that and that we did note from that is, is that Paul is commanding the Ephesian believers here to allow themselves to be continually filled by the Spirit no matter where they are, no matter what they're doing. As we worked through that in that particular sermon, we came away with this. This was one of the money statements, as it were. I quote, to be filled by the Spirit 
is to live in a way that is fully influenced by the Spirit, willingly yielding ourselves to the Spirit's control. It is to put ourselves continually in a position in which the Spirit has free reign in our lives. That it captures the command that Paul is giving us here. Is that we are to put ourselves continually in a position whereby the Spirit has full access to us. Now let us into a fourth question. Our fourth question was... How is the filling different from the Spirit's other ministries to the believer? How is filling different? Now, we didn't have time to, nor did we, look at a, at a complete, what's called pneumatology, you know, a complete study of the work of the Spirit, but we still looked at a few things, and, and we noted this. We noted that this, the Spirit has other ministries to us as believers, as Christians, such as sealing, right? He seals us, Ephesians 1.13. He indwells us, 1 Corinthians 6.19. We have spirit baptism, 1 Corinthians 12.13. And what we noted about these three very significant ministries of the Spirit to the believer is that they are bestowed upon us as a gift. They're a gift. We also noted that they are, that they are a an instantaneous reality, non-repeatable, that occurs at the moment of salvation. They are the gift of God to us on a non-repeatable basis to all Christians uniformly at the moment of salvation. We further noted that unlike what we have here in, in verse 18 of Ephesians 5, which is a command that the sealing, the indwelling, and the spirit baptism are not commands. There's, there's nothing, there's no command language associated with them. In other words, there's nothing to do for us to do with regard to them. We're merely the recipient of it all. Here, we have a command. There's a command here. Fifth. Fifth, we ask this question. Who does the filling? Who does it? If the Spirit is the means, who does the filling? And the answer was actually not all that hard. Christ. He is the one who fills us by means of the Spirit. And we noted that in Ephesians 1.23 and 4.10. So it's Christ who does the filling. Sixth. Sixth question. What is the content of of the filling. If, if the Spirit is not the content, but the means, and He is, then what is the content? What is the content? And we looked at some verses in Colossians, you'll remember, and tied it back in here because Colossians is a parallel letter and Paul addresses some of the same topics, he even uses some of the same language. And so we tied all that together, and what we noted was that in context, the, the, the content of the filling is the fullness of God. It is the fullness of God. And we, we noted that the fullness of God is the moral likeness of God. So what is the content of the filling? It is the moral likeness of God. 
And that moral likeness is most clearly expressed in whom? Christ. Christ. And so we tied in Romans 8.29 where Paul says that we are predestined to become conformed to the image of Christ. Christ. So the outcome is that as we are filled with the moral likeness of God, most perfectly expressed in Christ, in other words, as we become more like Christ by means of the Spirit, we become little Christ, which is what the word Christians means. That's what the word Christians means. We become little Christ. How do I fulfill this command? Number seven. How do I fulfill this command? And here it was very important for us to bring Colossians alongside, in particular Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, where we have the identical language with the exception that Paul says, he leads into it with this. He says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. You remember that? Yeah, let me read the whole thing to you. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Okay, same language that we find here in 5.18 and following. So how do we fulfill this command? Well, we, what we concluded is that we... Fulfill the command to be filled by means of the Spirit as we grant the Spirit unhindered access to every nook and cranny of our lives. In other words, we, we throw it wide open and we say, change me. And we, and we do that practically through a thoughtful and prayerful reading, meditating, and study of the Word of God. Because that's how the Spirit changes us. It's through the Word. So as we, as we pour into the Word of God, the Spirit pours into us. It provides the, the raw material, as it were, for Him to transform us and make us like Christ. He uses the scriptures to shape the way you think, to, to shape the way we feel, to shape the way we behave. Eight. Eight. Can the filling leak out? Remember that one? Can the filling leak out? The answer was no. Very good. The answer was no. However, we can and do obstruct his work of fully influencing us by giving in to sin. And in particular, we talked about three categories of sin that, that obstruct his work of fully influencing us. And, and here they were. Self-reliance. Remember that one? 
Self-reliance. Self-reliance we defined as, as raising any other authority source, including our own opinion, above the Scriptures. And we warned about bringing any authority source alongside of the Scriptures and, and, and seeing them as somehow equal or parallel. Because the inevitable result of that is that it will take precedent over the Scriptures. It is the, rule of, uh, it is the rule of God in the lives of His people through the Word of God that is the final and ultimate authority for all things. Anything else is self-reliance. We also noted that we obstruct the work of the, of the Spirit fully influencing us by self-exaltation. Self-exaltation. In other words, thinking more highly of ourselves in relation to the other believers around us. And we do that because we forget that we are saved by grace through faith as a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that we don't, what? Boast! Why? Because we're boastful people. And so when we lose sight of that, we begin to exalt ourselves and, and to see ourselves as more important than others, and we lose track of the unity of the body of Christ. That obstructs the Spirit's work. Third, and finally, was self-will. Self-will. We define this as, as resisting the Spirit's work in us by living on the same moral plane as those who are still in darkness. Ephesians 4.30. Living on the same moral plane as those who are still in darkness. Obstructs the work of the Spirit. Why? Because it's, it's not giving into His influence over us. Nine. Nine. Is the filling of the Spirit visible? Is the filling of the Spirit visible? And here we answer this by noting that the actual work of the Holy Spirit conforming us to the image of Christ is invisible. Remember we looked at John 3, right? You, spirit blows kind of like the wind. You, you, you don't know where it comes from. You know where it's going, but you can see the result. You see the leaves move. So with regard to the Spirit's work here, uh, the results are not invisible, but the process is, inv is invisible. Can't, can't see it. Can't see him working. What we can see is the outcome of him working. And we noted grammatically, again, because... The, well, because it's important. <laughs> we noted here that the verb, be filled, in verse 18, is the main verb of this whole section. It's the main verb, and, and it controls verses 19, 20, 21, and really verse 22 as well. It's the main verb, to be filled. And, and what we noted was that following the main verb here in verse 18, Paul gives us, in verses 19 through 21, five participles 
that describe the result of the Spirit's filling, not the means of the Spirit's filling. And that was important. So, is the filling of the Spirit visible? Yes and no. No, and that you don't see him work. Yes, in the sense that you can see the outcome of it in verses 19, 20, and 21. Daniel Wallace, in his Greek grammar, Beyond the Basics, says the following, I quote, The way in which one measures his or her success in filling, fulfilling excuse me, the command of 518 is by the participles that follow. In other words, the way that you and I can measure our um, openness to the Spirit's work in us is by evaluating our lives in light of these five participles in verses 19, 20, and 21. And we noted when we looked at this a couple weeks ago that the first four of the paradigms of the participles here, and they are just, you know, maybe you can circle them or whatever you, whatever you want to do, but it's speaking in verse 19. It's singing and making melody in verse 19, and it's giving thanks in verse 20. Those are the first four. All right, so singing, excuse me, speaking, singing, making melody, and giving thanks. And we noted that they all occur in the realm of the public gathering of the church. In other words, you, you can evaluate the Spirit's work in you. Are you being filled by the Spirit by how you participate in the public gathering of the people of God? The fifth participle in verse 21, the NASB has be subject, but if you look in the, in the marginal notes, you'll see it's literally being subject, okay, being subject, serves as a bridge. So it's a bridge, and it's a bridge from the public to the private. So it's the idea of submission publicly, yes, but it's more specifically submission as it plays out in the home, beginning in verse 22 and running all the way through chapter 6 and verse 9. So this, you know, be being filled, which is a way to translate the present passive participle of, in verse 18, is a very, very, very important command that, that is an umbrella over this entire section. And we're going we're to spend a fair amount of time looking at beginning in verse 22 and running all the way through chapter 6 and verse 9. There is a lot here, but it all comes under the rubric of the Spirit work in us. Husbands can't love their wives like Christ loves the church outside of being filled by the Spirit. Wives can't respect and honor and submit to their husbands outside of being filled by the Spirit. Children cannot obey their parents in the Lord outside of being filled by the Spirit. And, and the interaction between slaves and masters, and, and we'll look to contemporize some of that, at least applicationally, cannot occur outside of being filled by means of the Spirit. Okay, So, so this is very, very, very important. 
Without this, there's no power. Then it's just a bunch of do's and don'ts, a list, a rule book that will frustrate you to no end. To no end. Okay, so this is huge. This is very, very huge. So we asked the question, um, was it two weeks ago or whatever, can you see the result of a congregation that is being filled by the Spirit? Micah raised that issue with us in the call to worship, right? Yes, you can. You can see it in the singing. You can see it in the public prayers. And you can see it in each other's home. You can see it in each other's home. And, and you remember, I said, that's why hospitality, it's just one, but, but it's, a, it's an important reason why Christian hospitality is so significant in the New Testament. It's because it puts on display spirit-filled lives. And when you invite the unbelieving world in, they see something radically different. And when you invite the believing world in, it is a means by which we disciple one another. Can't emphasize it enough. And it's so contrary to the individualistic, self-absorbed, hidden lives that most of American society lives. It is so anti-New Testament. All right, enough of that. We're ready for new material. Where are we here? Okay, we're good. I think we're okay. We're ready for the final. Here it is, 10th question. 10th and final question. Where do I find the strength to obey? Where do I... I okay, I'm persuaded, right? Uncle. But where do I find the strength to obey? Again, Daniel Wallace and his, his fine uh, grammar here, Greek grammar beyond the basics, he notes uh, in, in speaking about the, the grammatical structure of verse 18, he notes the progressive difficulty, this is, this is important and insightful, the progressive difficulty of going from speaking God's word in song to being thankful for all things, right, verse 20, to being submissive to one another. In other words, the easiest thing to do is show up and sing. Being thankful for everything is hard. And harder still is being submissive to those in authority. He writes, Wallace writes, quote, such progression would, of course, immediately suggest that this filling is not instantaneous and absolute, but progressive and relative. That's great. Okay, let me read it again. Such progression from singing to, to being thankful for all things to being submissive to one another, such progression would, of course, immediately suggest that filling is not instantaneous and absolute, but progressive and Relative. In other words, being filled by the Spirit is not like flipping on a light switch. It occurs over time by diligent exertion of effort on the part of the believer. 
It's a command after all. But here's the rub. There are times in every one of our lives, and, and maybe that's where you are right now this morning, but there are times when we find ourselves not particularly diligent and not expending much effort in the Christian life. It happens to all of us, to all of us. So you may be there right now. You may have just been there. You may, it may be hanging out there for you because it's a, it's a common experience. It's a common experience. You're not alone. You're not alone if, if you're kind of feeling a little cold this morning. The question is, is the answer to the times when we're not being particularly diligent, when we're not exerting much effort in, in being filled by the Spirit, is it to dig down deep and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just try harder? Is, is that the answer? Is it, is it just sheer willpower? You know, the Nike slogan, just do it. Or, has God provided a means of grace to help us in our time of need? You know the answer, right? God has provided a means of grace, really means, plural, of grace to help us in our time of need. So if you're in it this morning, listen carefully. This is the way out. If you're not in it, listen carefully. So when you are, you know how to get back out. God has provided various means of grace, and they all flow out of the gospel. They all flow out of the gospel. Why? It is because the gospel contains the greatest density of the power of God to be found anywhere in the universe. That is Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. It is the power of God. It is of a greater power than that which he exerted when he spoke this universe into existence. So the power we need is available to us in the gospel. So let's look a little more carefully at how to use the gospel. So it begins here. I'm calling it the means of grace. Okay? The means of grace. I'll spend the most time on the first one, and then we'll quickly move through the others. So the first one is this. It's preaching the gospel to yourself. You probably have heard that terminology, you probably use that terminology, and sometimes you're probably not sure exactly what it means, but it really sounds spiritual. Man, I just got to preach the gospel to myself. Yes, you do, but you don't know what that means. Well, here it is. And, and we don't really have to go outside of this letter to the Ephesians to be able to do it. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? We preach the gospel to ourselves like this. We begin, for example, in chapter 1 and verse 4 by noting that God the Father loves us. 
Right? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us. He loves us and he has chosen us to be holy and blameless. In other words, he has, he has chosen us to become like Christ. That's why God has saved you. If you're a child of God this morning. He has saved you so that you will become like Christ. And he's committed to it. Further, we can note here in, in 5 and 6 and, and then down into verse 11. Oh, by the way, um, I had another reference here to, um, yeah, chapter 2, verse 4. God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Right? So to preach the gospel to yourself is to, is to understand and acknowledge that God loves you. And he, and he chose you because he loves you, and he chose you for a purpose. Not randomly, but he chose you for a purpose. To be like his son. To be little Christ all over the place. We know in uh, chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, that, that God the Father has united us with Christ and adopted us as sons so that we share the family likeness and inheritance. Right? In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Verse 11. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So it's in love you've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. It's in love you have been, a, been um, adopted into the family of God by becoming a joint heir with Jesus Christ. You are, you are a son of the living God. And God is busy working out the family identity. We note in chapter 1, verse 7, that Christ the Son has shed his blood to purchase our redemption and to set us free from the power and penalty of sin. Right? In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of his grace, chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, we're made alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In other words, Jesus has provided all that you need. All that you need. He didn't provide 95% of what you need and another 5% God's looking to you to fill in. God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who are helpless. Anyone who thinks that they are adding anything to the party are outside, looking in. Christ has shed his blood for you. For you. If you're a child of God this morning. We note further in the same chapter, 1. Great chapter, by the way. Want to preach the gospel to yourself? Read chapter 1. But we notice here in, in chapter 1 that, that, that the, the Father has given us his Holy Spirit, third person of the Godhead, right? He has been, he, not it, he has been given to us to ensure 
that our status as forgiven sons never falters, no matter what, good day or bad. Verses 13 and 14, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. This is huge. What it means is, is that your status as a son of God never changes. It it doesn't diminish and it cannot be improved. You've got your good days and you've got your bad days, but you're still a child of God, an adopted son for whom all of the riches of Christ have been reserved for you. Why would we want the fleeting pleasures of this world? When we're children of the King. Well, beloved, our love for Him may wobble, for sure. It may. But His love for us never changes. Never, never changes. He loves us with the same love that he reserves for his son. The love of the Father for Christ, existing for me all eternity, intertrinitarian love, has been poured out upon us in union with Christ. That's what Jesus says in his high priestly prayer in John 17 that we might know that love that he and the Father share. (laughs) It's unbelievable. Think about it. I mean, it's incredible. Passionate, perfect love. Yours in Christ. Good times or bad. Chapter 2, verse 13. Because the Father has placed us in union with Christ, we are also united with all other believers in the family of God. This is the gospel. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In this local fellowship, we all share the same indwelling Holy Spirit and experience the the fellowship of the Spirit one with another. That's Paul's statement here in verse 18. For through him, that is Christ, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. In other words, that my access to the Father and your access to the Father is identical through the Spirit. In other words, that none of us have an advantage over one another and we are all together in one family. And we can call him Abba, Father, Daddy. We share a common destiny. 
We share the common family identity, and, and, and accordingly, we share a common destiny and a common purpose. And it's, and it's to, just to grow in the likeness of Christ, chapter 4, beginning in verse 13 and following, right? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and a knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. In other words, I need you. And you need me. And we need each other. As we grow in the likeness of Christ, you cannot grow in the likeness of Christ all by yourself. There is no place in the New Testament for a lone wolf Christian. None. We preach the gospel to ourselves. Other means of grace. I need to move quickly here. Other means of grace. I just I'll line them very, very quickly for you. Private prayer. We talked about public prayer, but private prayer. Private prayer. And I just, I'll just say this. Uh, let me just suggest this to you. If you haven't tried it, try it. Paul gives two great prayers here in the first three chapters of Ephesians. In chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, he, he prays there to un, that the believers would understand what God has done for them in Christ. And then in chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, he prays that they might deeply believe that God loves them in Christ. So in other words, they might understand the gospel and that they might deeply believe the gospel. Let me just suggest this. Try personalizing those prayers. Just work on that a little bit. Go, you know, use the language that Paul gives you here and, and think about that to inform and personalize your own prayer that you might understand the gospel better and that you might believe it more. It's a means of grace. Here's another one for you. Three. One-to-one -one Bible reading. Spirit, he uses his word. So as we read the scriptures together, the spirit uses the scriptures in our lives. So husbands and wives, right? We're going to be dealing here with in chapter 5, with husband-wife relationship. And so husbands and wives, read the Bible together. Friends, read the Bible with a friend. Just read the Bible together. Why? Because Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Four, the public worship of the church. Back to chapter 5 in Ephesians. Right? The public, public worship of the church is a, is a discipling means of grace. As we sing, as we pray, the preaching of the word, these are means of grace. So, so don't miss. Make it your habit to be here. Five, baptism and communion. Baptism and communion are means of grace. They're means by which the grace of God is ministered to us. 
They are symbols of the gospel, and they are commands to be obeyed. And when we are obedient to the command and partake of the symbols appropriately, then God's grace flows to us through them. It strengthens our faith. Six, involvement in small groups where we can legitimately have, a, have an opportunity to practice the, the manifest one another's of the New Testament. It's too hard in a big crowd, but in a smaller setting of a small group, the one another's are means of grace. Two more, and I'm done. Serving other people. Serving other people is a means of grace. Why? Because Mark 10, 45, that's why. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Listen, if the king didn't come to be served, why would we think as subjects of the king that we should be served? We emulate our king when we serve others. It's a means of grace. If you're not involved serving, get involved. Get involved. And finally, sharing the gospel. Sharing the gospel is a means of grace. Why? Because we tell other people about what Jesus has done. It, it, it strengthens our own understanding and commitment to that gospel. And if God grants us the, the incredible privilege of actually seeing the lights come on and, and the scales fall away and someone trusting Christ, man, we can rejoice with the angels, right? But even if we don't, in the very act of sharing the gospel in and of itself reinforces our understanding, commitment, and belief in that same gospel. It is a means of grace. Let me pray, and we will come and partake of one this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our time in it this morning, and may your spirit apply it to each of us where needed. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.